That's N.T. Wright. He's uh, one of the preeminent Bible scholars of our generation, probably the preeminent scholar alive today, and one of my favorites. I wanted to show you that video because he does such a great job of explaining the significance of continuing through entire books of the Bible when we read, rather than just a handful of verses at a time, and the importance of always placing what we read within that larger context of the entire biblical narrative. And this is precisely why we're working through the entire book of Acts in this sermon series, because it's the story of the church, and simply explaining a portion of it would give us really an incomplete picture. Later in that video, which is over seven minutes, so we didn't play it in its entirety, Wright goes on to explain that we typically study smaller sections at a time uh, in church because of the time constraints that we've placed on ourselves. But in our personal study, we really should read larger portions of Scripture at every sitting than probably most of us do. And of course, uh, we've always worked our way through longer uh, portions of Scripture here for our text in these sermons, certainly more than one or two verses at a time anyway, which is what I was used to as a kid in church. The pastor would often take a verse or two and just study that for the entire message, which is completely fine, by the way. It's just that for me, it's far more compelling to follow a storyline in a sermon than it is to simply analyze a few words in one verse for the duration of a message. Again, not that there's anything wrong with those who do that at all. And certainly, we do often stop and analyze a single word or a phrase anytime that helps bring clarity or a greater understanding to the overall passage. But, but then we always move on from there because it's just a, simply a goal here to try and convey that larger story every time that we gather. Okay, and I, and I bring all of that up only because some have asked me recently or commented on the fact that we go through a lot of scripture on Sundays here. And they weren't negative comments, by the way. But I just wanted to explain that, why. I personally believe the most engaging and impacting sermons tell a story. And the Bible is one big, incredible story. And so uh, we always aim for conveying that bigger picture as much as possible in these sermons, okay? With that said, as we continue working our way through Acts this morning, we'll be finishing up chapter 20 in a message entitled, Wolves Among Us. And we see Paul here at the end of his time in Asia Minor calling the elders of the church from Ephesus to meet with him, where he shares a final message with them because he knows that he won't be coming back there again. And we saw Paul at the end of our study last week explaining to these men that he didn't know what he was getting into uh, by going to Jerusalem, although he knew it wasn't good, but still he was resolved to go there as the Spirit of God was leading him. And so today, uh, this is the last bit of that same speech to these Ephesian pastors. This is Paul's final instructions, the last piece of wisdom that he can offer them in person before he heads off to Jerusalem. And in many ways, uh, this message is an echo of Jesus' final words to his followers in the upper room just before he was led away to die, as we'll see. Uh, and the significance really of Paul's final words to these church leaders is the warning that he gives them, which turns out to have been completely merited. And we'll talk about that also in a few minutes. Also, it's my firm belief that this warning by Paul is just as appropriate and timely for the church today as it was in Ephesus in the middle of the first century AD when he gave it. From the birth of the New Testament church, which really uh, begins with Jesus and his disciples, by the way, not at Acts 2, all the way through to our present day, there have been wolves among us. 
wolves in the church, those men and women within the body of Christ who seek to satisfy themselves at the expense of the flock. They slake their thirst for power and influence and prominence by preying on others in the church. And so potentially destructive to the church was this threat in Ephesus that Paul decided to make it the focus of his final message to those who were tasked with shepherding the congregation, the pastors of that early church. It is my personal conviction uh, that we're not only facing the very same perils from within the American church today, but I believe we're actually witnessing the modern day church in many instances being ravaged by the same kind of wolves that Paul warns the Ephesian pastors about. And so this morning, we're going to take some time to consider this warning by Paul and how it translates to the church today. And maybe in doing so, we can identify some of the warning signs that may help us to avoid the fate of the Ephesian church, which is exactly where I believe much of the church is living presently in this culture. Okay, so let's turn to Acts chapter 20. And uh, we'll pick up the story right where we left off last week. At verse 25, as Paul, he simultaneously offers a stern warning to the Ephesian pastors, even as he's saying his goodbyes, okay? Verse 25, And now behold, I know that none of you among whom I have gone about proclaiming the kingdom will see my face again. Therefore, I testify to you this day that I am innocent of the blood of all of you. For I did not shrink from declaring to you the whole counsel of God. Okay, so uh, before Paul offers his warning to these men, he says something to them about himself, which really becomes significant once you finish reading the rest of the chapter. In fact, he, he bookends uh, his warning with some statements about himself that will make a lot more sense once we've read through the entire speech. So let's continue and we'll come back to this part in a few minutes. Okay, verse 28. Pay careful attention to yourselves and to all the flock in which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers to care for the church of God, which he obtained with his own blood. All right. So often in Scripture, the congregation, uh, the members of the church, followers of Jesus Christ, were referred to as sheep or the flock. And, and the elders or the overseers were leaders of the flock. They were assigned or called to shepherd or pastor the flock or the sheep. And of course today, uh, the term sheep is viewed pretty much in a negative light when we, when we apply that to church people. So we don't use that description much anymore. We say believers or the congregation or church members and all that's fine. I simply want us to be clear in our understanding of who Paul is addressing and exactly who he's referring to in this speech. Okay, So back in verse 17, we saw that Paul called for the elders of the church to come to him. And the word elders in the Greek is the word presbyteroi or presbyteros, uh, either one, which refers to a ruler or a leader uh, in the local church. And then later here in verse 28, as we just read, Paul refers to these same men as overseers, which is the Greek word episkopos, which means elder, overseer, or bishop. And these elders or overseers were charged with the responsibility for caring for or shepherding the flock, which is, of course, the role of a pastor. And in Ephesians 4.11, Paul writes to the Ephesian church that God gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds, and teachers to equip the saints for the work of the ministry for the building up of the body of Christ. And that word shepherds in verse 11 in Ephesians is the Greek word poimen, which means pastor or shepherd or overseer, okay? So all these words 
are used interchangeably throughout the New Testament. They're referring to the same office within the church, what we refer to as the pastor. Okay, And I want to clarify that in terms of uh, today because Paul is here in our text. He's addressing what we would call the pastors of the church, of the Ephesian church, concerning the congregation. And that's important and we'll see why. All right. So when Paul says, pay careful attention to yourselves... To all of the flock in which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers to care for the church of God, which he attained with his own blood. He's saying to the pastors of the church in Ephesus, be sure that you do your job, which was given to you by the Holy Spirit, which is to care for the church, for the body. Okay, And by itself, that would seem like an obvious statement to make, except for what follows it, where Paul makes it very clear why he's reminding them that it is vital to their spiritual survival, that they do their job and they do it well. Verse 29. I know that after my departure, fierce wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock. And from among your own selves will arise men speaking twisted things. Remember, he's talking to the pastors to draw away the disciples after them. Okay. First of all, the warning was about church leaders. Paul was not concerned about wolves outside the church trying to force their way in. The world, everyone outside of the church, is not what threatens to destroy the fellowship of the believers at all. In fact, we already know where the rest of the world stands. Historically, the church has thrived the most during the most severe periods of persecution from the world. And I've, I've read this probably here before. Nancy Piercy, she's a, a great scholar and historian, wrote, It is a common assumption that in order to survive, churches must accommodate to the age. But in fact, the opposite is true. In every historical period, the religious groups that grow most rapidly are those that set believers at odds with the surrounding culture. As a general principle, the higher a group's tension with mainstream society, the higher its growth rate. And the research that goes along with this is fascinating. We are to love those who are in the world, not insulate ourselves from them out of fear that they may come in and ruin us. Okay. Yes, followers of Christ are supposed to be different uh, from the rest of the world. Absolutely. Yes, we're to live and love sacrificially, but we're never commanded to barricade the doors, literally or figuratively, to keep uh, people outside from getting into the church and ruining our nice family here. On the contrary, Paul warns, uh, his warning was to the pastors about pastors. He was warning them to watch out for the wolves among the clergy, among the pastors themselves. He says, from among your own selves will arise men speaking twisted things to draw the disciples, uh, draw away the disciples after them. You see, it's the religious leaders that have to be watched. Quite frankly, that's the way that it has always been. R.C. Sproul wrote, The greatest threat to the nation of Israel was not the Philistines or the Syrians or the Babylonians, but the false prophets in the midst of the people who took the truth of God and twisted it and distorted it and carried away the people to idolatry. Jesus' greatest enemies were the clergy of his day, the Pharisees and the Sadducees. Church history bears witness to the fact that those who bring unbelief into the church are not the secular professors. They are the seminary professors who deny the resurrection and the cross and train ministers of a new generation to deny the very essence of biblical truth. Okay, this is exactly what we see in some elements of the American church today. Ministers... Pastors, evangelists, 
self-proclaimed prophets and apostles who preach a partial gospel that is often mixed with just enough of their own agenda so as to draw the disciples after them, as Paul warns in verse 30. And it begins when we fail to preach and teach the whole counsel of God, which Paul talks about in verse 27. And as we continue reading, we see him come back to this theme. Okay, verse 31. Therefore be alert, remembering that for three years I did not cease night or day to admonish everyone with tears. And now I commend you to God and to the word of His grace, which is able to build you up and to give you the inheritance among all those who are sanctified. Okay, this was not only a warning to church leaders about the future church leaders, this was a warning for them to stay committed to the word of God. Because that is one way to recognize the difference between a Bible teacher and a false teacher. False teachers are never committed to the Word of God first. They're committed to their own agenda first. And they prostitute the Scriptures to support their own errant claims. And I don't know how many of the pastors that end up leading people away from the true gospel start out that way. Uh, There may be some whose intention from the beginning is to ravage the church. But what I personally believe to be a more common occurrence is when a well-meaning pastor or evangelist becomes more interested in teaching clever concepts which can be popular and inspiring rather than relying on the Word of God first for their teaching. It is very tempting as a pastor and a teacher to come up with clever concepts or philosophies and then search the scriptures for various and random verses that we can allegorize far beyond their original meaning to fit whatever it is we're trying to convey. In other words, rather than go to the Bible and study it first and meditate on those words first and pray about that passage First, And then through the rigors and discipline of sound exegesis, which is a fancy word that means critical analysis um, and interpretation of the scripture. Rather than taking the time and putting the hours and work required to properly exegete or interpret a passage, and it takes a lot of time and a lot of effort. Rather than doing that first and then teaching it for what it is, no more, no less. Instead of that, it can be very tempting to sit around as a creative person and think about clever and creative concepts and philosophies that we think might motivate and inspire people to action. And then we come up with something that sounds really great and we do a bunch of word searches to find verses that may support that clever idea or thesis that, we, that we've come up with, which is called eisegesis. It's the opposite of exegesis. And we teach those ideas and concepts with a lot of scripture attached, believing that those verses, no matter how out of context they may be, validate our own ideas and philosophies about life and God and the church. And unfortunately, there are a lot of people teaching this way in churches today. Very common. And it is incredibly dangerous for the church because we want to trust our pastors for sound teaching and guidance. And yet there are many believers who are following teachings today that aren't remotely based on Scripture. And the the further down that road that, that a pastor goes, left unchecked, the harder it is to come back to true biblical exegesis. Because honestly, we pastors love to be affirmed. We love to be applauded. 
We love to be popular and no one enjoys having to admit when they're wrong. And so we see leaders sometimes dig in their heels and stick to their own teaching, even when it's pointed out to them in Scripture that what they've taught is actually a deviation from the truth of God's Word. And sometimes you'll see a church leader refuse to make those corrections or to be taught by anyone else because no one likes to admit that they've made a mistake or risk their popularity even for the sake of teaching difficult passages in the Bible. And yet, look, there is a lot of Scripture that is hard, that is challenging, that is convicting, that is difficult. And to teach some of those passages with honesty and integrity can sometimes scare people away. And so it's a lot easier and it feels a lot better to just stick to a message that won't offend or challenge or convict anyone. We can end up, if we're not careful, teaching a partial gospel at best and heresy at worst. This is why Paul says to the pastors in Ephesus, I did not shrink from declaring to you the whole counsel of God. And this is why the messages at our church always follow scripture line by line and verse by verse. Even when we pull other passages into the sermons, they always relate contextually to the main text, whatever chapter or book of the Bible that we're studying together. Because no matter how clever or creative I am, I cannot improve on God's word. And the Bible does not require me to make that effort. The best that I can offer is to effectively communicate to you what the Bible teaches us and how that applies to us today. But the teaching comes from God's Word, revealed by the Holy Spirit. It's always centered on Christ and then delivered by the pastor or the teacher to the congregation. We're just the messenger. Right? And this is precisely what Paul was doing here with these pastors from the Ephesian church. And interestingly enough, when you study Paul's teachings, which are really God's teachings, of course, you find that they always point to Jesus Christ. Uh, Paul said, again, I did not shrink from declaring to you the whole counsel of God. In Matthew 28, 19 and 20, Jesus said, Make disciples of all nations, that's what Paul was doing, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, that's what Paul was doing, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. That would be the whole counsel of God. Even this warning that Paul's giving to these pastors echoes the teachings of Jesus. Paul said, I know that after my departure, fierce wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock. And in Matthew 7, 15, Jesus says, Beware of false prophets who come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly are ravenous wolves. And so this is a great piece of wisdom that we can use when trying to discern whether or not a particular verse or passage is being properly interpreted, okay? Scripture that is taught correctly will always agree with other Scripture. Paul's teachings are in agreement with the rest of the body of the Bible as long as they're not taken out of context and misapplied, which is exactly what false teachers do, the wolves that are among us. And Peter really sums this up well in his second letter to the churches in chapter 3, verses 15 through 18. Second Peter, he says, Our beloved brother Paul also wrote to you according to the wisdom given him, as he does in all his letters when he speaks in them of these matters. There are some things in them that are hard to understand, which the ignorant and unstable twist to their own destruction as they do the other scriptures. You therefore, beloved, knowing this beforehand, take care that you're not carried away with the error of lawless people and lose your own stability. 
but grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Can you see how these passages refer to each other? They're all in agreement with one another. This is how we're to study and teach the Word of God. We teach all of it. The whole counsel of God. All that Jesus commanded. We never simply pick out random passages to support our own presuppositions. And yet, unfortunately, this is exactly what many do. Hence the warnings from Paul and Peter and Jesus himself. Okay? And then we'll finish out the chapter today. As we do, we see Paul again making some comments about himself at the end of this warning. And taken on the whole, it becomes clear what he's trying to communicate, the picture he's trying to paint for these church leaders by referencing himself and his own behavior over the past three years that he spent with them. All right, let's read it together. Verse 33. I coveted no one's silver or gold or apparel. You yourselves know that these hands ministered to my necessities and to those who were with me. In all things I've shown you that by working hard in this way we must help the weak and remember the words of the Lord Jesus, how he himself said, It is more blessed to give than to receive. And when he had said these things, he knelt down and prayed with them all. Then there was much weeping on the part of all. They embraced Paul and kissed him, being sorrowful most of all because of the word he had spoken, that they would not see his face again. And they accompanied him to the ship. All right, so Paul makes several comments in closing his speech here about the way he's conducted himself. He says, I coveted no one's silver or gold or apparel. In other words, I didn't spend all of this time here with you, teaching you and loving you and working for you for my own material gain. I didn't do this for the money. He says, these hands ministered to my own necessities and to those who were with me. He says, we must remember the weak. And then he points to them, to the words of Jesus. Again, it's more blessed to give than to receive. In his own example, this warning is a challenge by Paul to follow his example. It's a challenge to follow Paul's example. And so Paul wasn't bragging about how godly he was when he talked about himself. His comments are there to offer a contrast between himself, the way that he ministered to them, and the way that the wolves behave. In verse 27, he says, I did not shrink from declaring to you the whole counsel of God. I never held anything back that would benefit you, that would make you healthier. Verse 33 says, I coveted no one's silver or gold or apparel. I took nothing from you for my own gain. In verse 35, he says, we must help the weak and remember the words of the Lord. Jesus, how he himself said it's more blessed to give than to receive. In other words, we have to look out for each other. We have to help the weak, just as I've shown you. And then in verses 36 and 37, we see Paul and the pastors kneel down together and they're praying and weeping and embracing each other. Everything that Paul did was to bring unity among them. And yet, wolves separate the sheep from each other. They single out the weak and they prey on them. They act on their own behalf for their own gain. Can you see the stark contrast the opposing images that Paul paints for them between his own ministry, which points to Christ, serves the weak, brings unity to the church, and the wolves that will rise up from among them and divide the church and prey on the weak and draw the focus to themselves. Paul says, you've seen the authentic. Now don't accept a false version. And yet people who come to church and they want to constantly draw attention to themselves. And usually they'll do that even by acting seemingly very spiritual. Those people can become wolves in the church if they're given a position of leadership. 
People who come to the church and they want to draw others to their own agenda. They want to start their own program that has nothing to do with the vision of the church. And they want to pull people in and pit them against other parts of the church. Those people can become wolves if they're given a position in leadership. And people come into the church and they pray on the weak and the poor and the needy. And they ask you to sign up for their program or give them money for their own personal gain. And those people can become wolves in the church if they're given a position of leadership. And, of course, there are people who come to the church who meet other people. And they engage in business activity outside of the church because of that new relationship. That's fine. That's not what we're talking about. We're talking about people whose desire is to leverage the congregation for money or influence or position for their own gain or their own ego. And I'm telling you, you can always tell who they are. Because the moment you tell them that you're not going to give them a title or a position or a place of authority in the church, they either stir up trouble or they leave angry. I've seen it over and over and over and over again at every single church that I've ministered in, which is exactly what Paul was warning the elders in Ephesus about. He said, look guys, watch out. Don't give them any ground in the church. Don't allow them to lead others astray. Don't allow them to go unchallenged. Don't give them authority over others in the church. Don't put them in leadership. Don't allow them anywhere near the pulpit. Protect your congregation. Unfortunately, and perhaps the most haunting aspect of this warning that we can now see looking back in history is that it came true. Paul's letters to Timothy, who served at the church in Ephesus about 10 years or so later, attest to the presence of false teachers who were there ravaging the church for their own gain. And these were false teachers who had come from within the church. In fact, they came from the elders themselves. And then in Revelation 2, we see Jesus instructing John to write to the seven churches in Asia Minor, which of course includes the church at Ephesus. And in that instruction, Jesus rebukes the Ephesian church for leaving its first love. Paul's warning was realized. Thankfully, later in the second century, Ignatius, a church father, wrote about a revival and a great restoration of the Ephesian church, which should give us hope today. It gives me hope for those churches who have allowed false teachers to come in, wolves among them, to corrupt their fellowship. And it should always be a reminder for us to pray for the restoration of other churches rather than simply criticizing them. Okay, That's our job, to pray for the body of Christ and for these churches and leaders who've been led astray. Okay, And I also just want to point out this morning, as mentioned earlier, there's a wonderful parallel between Paul's final meeting here with the Ephesian elders and Jesus' final meeting with his disciples. And it's pertinent to this discussion. Just as Jesus had been pouring his life into his disciples for three years and then he gathered them together for this final meeting. Paul's been pouring his life into these Ephesian pastors for three years. And then he calls them together for this final meeting. And Jesus told his disciples that in just a little while they would see him no more. And they were mourning that together when he told them that. Paul tells the Ephesian pastors that after that day none of them would see him again. And they were mourning that together as well. Jesus talked about the one among them. When they were together, who would betray them? And Paul warns the elders about the wolves among them who will divide the church. And at one point earlier in Luke 13, Jesus said to his disciples, Nevertheless, I must go on my way today and tomorrow and the day following. For it cannot be that a prophet should perish away from Jerusalem. And earlier in Paul's speech to the elders, he says, Behold, I'm going to Jerusalem, constrained by the Spirit. 
not knowing what will happen to me there, except that the Holy Spirit testifies to me in every city that imprisonment and afflictions await me. And just as the disciples stood at the Mount of Transfiguration, looking up into heaven as the ascended Christ was leaving the earth, the Ephesian elders stood on the shores of Miletus, watching Paul's ship sail away, knowing they would never see him again in this life. Paul's life, his ministry, and even his death echoed that of Jesus Christ in so many ways. This is an example for us to follow, and it's what Paul was trying to communicate to the pastors in Ephesus. We are to model our lives and our ministries after Jesus Christ. Lives and ministries that are, yes, full of love and sacrifice, uncompromising truth and blessing and fulfillment. And we certainly do see that, by the way, in many churches today in our country. And yet there seems to be this common assumption currently among those who blog and, and commentate on the church that because some of the current statistics show the church in America in decline in terms of attendance, that those numbers or that trend necessarily means that the church is doing something wrong. And we need to fix it immediately to stem the tide of people who are leaving the church and turn that trend around. And now look, I'm not suggesting at all that the church doesn't make mistakes. In fact, we don't have the time today to list all the mistakes made by the church. And every single mistake, every proper, improper, excuse me, offense, uh, every unmerited wound, every mess that the church has made and in some cases continues to make should absolutely be corrected. And where there needs to be repentance on the part of the church and its leadership, we need to repent and make things right. Absolutely, without question. However, to use adherence, attendance, the popularity of the church in our culture today as the primary indicator of whether or not the church is doing it right is a big mistake. Paul often went to cities that outright rejected him and his message, and he shook the dust from that city off of himself. And he was doing exactly what he was supposed to be doing, but he would go somewhere else. Paul was a really smart guy. He was often invited to speak at the local synagogues wherever he went by the leaders of the synagogues. Paul could have easily, the moment he sensed that the people were turning away from him in the message, he could have adjusted that message to be more palpable, more acceptable. He could have adjusted it to be less offensive and less challenging. He could have easily left some of the harder parts out and reassured everyone that, you know what, as long as we're making an effort, we're attending synagogue faithfully. We're just loving people. Everybody's going to be okay because all that matters is grace and good intentions. Had he done that, I've no doubt that the church's ranks would have increased exponentially in those cities. But that's not what he did. Instead, Paul, out of a heart of compassion and love for people and obedience and love for Christ, chose to teach the whole counsel of God, including the difficult parts. And because of that, some of the places where he tried to establish churches ran him out of town. Some of them tried to kill him. Church attendance 
and popularity in the local culture in any given era or location should not be the sole litmus test for whether or not we're doing church right. And yet, the more the bloggers and the church analysts and the latest cool cultural icons sound off about the church, the more I see people panicking everywhere panicking about this trend and trying to figure out how we can placate people, how to make them like us again so they'll come back. And the most common approach that I'm seeing to fixing the problem is the extremely disturbing trend of either altering the message of the gospel so as to make it more palpable or altogether leaving parts of it out and only teaching the bits that make us feel good. And if ever the warnings of Paul and Peter and Jesus were timely for the church. They are timely now. Because there are wolves among us. And they're taking advantage of a fractured and confused church that is clamoring to stop the exodus of the younger generation. And instead of heeding the warnings over and over again in Scripture, we church leaders have allowed the wolves to feast on the congregation. And in some cases, we use them as a model for church growth. Right? And by the way, I'm not at all making a correlation between megachurches and false teaching, by the way. I know there are a lot of people who immediately dismiss large churches as heretical, and I couldn't disagree with that more. There are many, many very large churches who are doing an amazingly effective and scripturally accurate job of reaching and discipling people all over this country. Again, attendance should not be the determining factor of whether or not an individual church is getting it right or getting it wrong. There are a multitude of factors involved. The current cultural climate and tolerance for religion at any point in history and culture, which changes all the time. The attitude of some individuals in any given location where there's a church. Again, some of the cities were more receptive to Paul's messages than other. It was the same message. It was different, though, how he was received from city to city. Ultimately, of course, it's the sovereign work of grace by God in people's lives anyway that determines who is a part of the church and who is not, which is up to him. But for our part, times change. Culture changes. People's attitudes and preferences and perceptions and tolerances and openness toward the church and the gospel, it changes all the time. The key for the church is not to try and constantly chase the moving target of culture. The key, as always, is to turn to the Word of God for guidance and the voice of the Holy Spirit for discernment in how to proceed. Always teaching the whole counsel of God in the most effective and, yes, of course, the most culturally relevant way that we can without compromise. And after that, it's entirely up to God. And in that, some churches will flourish more than others in terms of attendance. So, so look, I want our church to have roughly, uh, I don't know, a gazillion people in it. Why? Because I want everyone to follow Jesus Christ and become an active, participating member of a thriving local church. And so we'll always work to that end. Uh, that's why the statement between, uh, beneath our church name says, Experiencing Life Together living out the gospel. This is a growing family. And I hope it never stops growing. And yet when it's all said and done, I must, I must be able to say to all of you that I am innocent of the blood of all. For I did not shrink from declaring to you the whole counsel of God. 
Because regardless of how many people ever become a part of Upcountry Church, if my claim is anything short of that, I will have failed you. And I'm not willing to live with that. Because I love you. And I love the church of Jesus Christ. And I wouldn't be any kind of pastor if I didn't protect it from the wolves among us. So as members of this great family, and it is a great family, we owe it to each other to be honest and compassionate. To be full of grace and truth. To love and correct. To forgive and restore. In little and in plenty, in sacrifice and in blessing, and when we're few and when we're many. Always protecting each other, especially those who are most vulnerable among us from the wolves who will try to come in here and divide us, and they will. And I want to tell you, I have no doubt, I have no doubt in that, that we will continue to grow and become stronger because what we have here is very real. It's healthy, it's authentic, and it's being built on the whole counsel of God. Amen? I love you guys. Let's pray.